0: Welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Good morning, good afternoon, welcome everybody. I'm here this afternoon with Matthew Eschid. He is an entrepreneur, systems designer, and engineer working in climate. Innovation. Welcome, Matthew.
1: Thank you. Great to be here, Christina.
0: Thanks so much. So I'm in New Mexico today. Tell me, where are you? You've been traveling a little bit lately, too. Where are you calling from today?
1: Mm, I'm in the East Village of Manhattan, Tenth Street between Avenue C and D, all the way over. And it is currently raining very heavily outside with Hurricane uh, Isais. Isais. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: That's so it's nothing it's like happening that here. It's, I'm in a desert solitude right now. Um, so let's get started first with how we came to meet. So I, I, my recollection is that we found each other in Air Miners. And you, I think, are one of the original core team at Air Miners. Can you say a little bit about, about Air Miners and, and what you do there now?
1: Yeah. So uh, I'm a co-founder of Air Miners. I was there when it was nothing. We actually called it the Unnamed Institute because we didn't know what to call it or what it was going to be. But we started out with looking at the trillion tons of excess carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere that has been placed there since the 1850s, since the Industrial Revolution, and when the combustion of fossil fuels really started. And we were tasked with trying to figure out how we can create and identify and facilitate and spark a market demand for products that represent the removal of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and we started looking into it and we saw, okay, this thing, it's called carbon capture utilization and sequestration. Okay, what is that? What is that? And we started asking around, what is this? What is it? Who's in it? Who works in it? And we found out that it's dominated by the fossil fuel industry, by academia and by government. And we said, okay, we we need to bust this thing open. We're open source entrepreneurs in San Francisco. We believe in sharing. And so we need to come up with a better name.
0: So this is so fascinating. The genesis of this is so um, uh, great because it's it's like grassroots science. So who is you and a couple of friends? And you have, you, as I understand, you each have... Scientific backgrounds, but not necessarily climate science backgrounds. Can you say a little bit about um, that founding team and also your own academic background?
1: My degree is in mechanical engineering. I have been working on sustainability uh, since I graduated from college and. By the time that we started working on air miners, this is me and Tito Jankowski. He's my uh, we we co-founded Impossible Labs together, and that was the company that was contracted to create what became air miners. Tito is also an engineer. His background is in biomedical engineering and we started Impossible Labs because we saw climate change as a massive opportunity. We wanted to find artifacts and products and examples and things that we could actually put our hands on that represent climate action. And so we work in in tech and we both come from product management backgrounds. So that was the framing that we had. And on top of that, then we were also within the uh, community called Many Labs, which was an open science and citizen science community. And it was through there that we were in this container of super duper science creation making, you know, hands on. Let's just do it. Let's try it. What is it? What's going to what happen? Things, I don't know.
0: What kinds of things um, got made there?
1: Yeah, great question. So one of the other uh, residents at many labs was the Scope, which came out of the Stanford University Frugal Science Lab, and that's a $1 microscope. Um, Something, wow. one of the other uh, groups that, that was there was Eric Maundu and his company Kijani Grows, which uh, where he was working on a uh, DIY aquaponics kit for education, where all of the wooden panels are laser, were laser-cut in-house. We had a laser cutter, big laser cutter there, and he built the computer. In fact, I have one of his computer boards right here. I'm looking at it. It's a, it's a pack, and inside, there's a proximity sensor, humidity sensor, temperature sensor, light sensor, and this beautiful computer board, the smart controller. And then there were also, um, there was scientists, uh, Sarah Davis was there, and she's just a really incredible multidisciplinary scientist. She worked on um, visual kind of just like everything. I, I It's almost, you, you should have her on the show. <laughs> I, I can't even do her work justice. It's um, such
0: a, um, I mean, coming, I think a lot of people have, Uh, regular, quote unquote, what's regular anymore. But, you know, from the perspective of somebody who has a more routine job, this, um, you know, confluence of creative scientists just sounds to me so exciting. I have this idea of you guys in like a cool warehouse space, just big braining um, amazing projects. I forgot to mention at the very beginning, you are now leading your own company, which is Climate Tech Advisors. So mm-hmm. at, at, that, at the air miners point, what mm-hmm. was this like 2017 or something you were in mm-hmm. California? And now you sort of, every, it seems like the, we're, people are still in sort of nascent stages with mm-hmm. um, businesses that hatched out of that. Um, but But it seems like that team is kind of gone in a few different directions. Tito's leading air miners and doing other projects and you're um, working climate tech advisors back in New York. So how, Mm -hmm. what was that transition Mm -hmm. um, like? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So 2017 was the year that we were studying this space and that where we waded into what was known, then known as carbon capture utilization and sequestration. And then a few months later, we termed it Air Miners and we created this website. And the ultimate goal of the website, airminers.org, was to create a platform to connect innovators in atmospheric carbon removal from all around the world. And so we created an index of the all of the companies and projects that we found. And we our intention was for that to then be a platform for people to connect. And then a Slack community was created. And um, throughout 20. uh, So in 2018, I decided that I was going to come back to New York. So we kind of started the transition the Global Climate Action Summit happened in San Francisco in September, and we demonstrated an end-to-end, air-to-product direct air capture system. What would that look like based on the, um, the most cutting-edge technology that we could actually access based on the resources that we had? And we made this planter this concrete cup that had 116, oh, oh. the cup, yeah, 116 grams of atmospheric carbon dioxide in it.
0: Where'd you get the carbon dioxide? I've seen this planter. Tito has held this planter up and i have but I didn't know this was the roots of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at it right now. I have my my copy here on my desk. The the uh, limestone beads came from carbon engineering. We reached out to all of the direct air capture companies. We reached out to some of the point source capture companies, cut carbon upcycling technologies. They're doing cool stuff. We There's Clean O2. They're also in Canada. They're also cl- uh, capturing carbon dioxide from point source, mineralizing it. So we said, okay okay let's let's go with the concrete story because that's a big story oh yeah atmospheric carbon dioxide there's there's tons and tons and tons of it literally that, a trillion tons of it and there is a trillion tons or billion tons of concrete aggregate that's produced every year so what if we can turn that atmospheric co2 into limestone so we were kind of stepping into that story So we had this uh, prototype direct air capture machine that had been um, hacked together in the, uh, again, a different uh, co-working kind of open science tech hacker workspace that we were at in this time in Oakland. Many labs was in San Francisco, 7th and Folsom. And um, this space circuit launch was in Oakland and right near the airport. And there was a, a team there building a direct air capture prototype. So we took their prototype, we took the limestone that we got from Carbon Engineering, um, which is a midstream product. Carbon Engineering makes fuel. And we said, okay, well, can we have some of your limestone that you grew with the atmospheric CO2? And they said, sure, no problem. And I remember the day that the box came in with this big, I don't know, gallon, two gallon jug of these white beads. And I received it and I opened it up and I like got all my papers out. I'm like, okay, I need notes. This is science. Okay,
0: <laughs> we're doing science.
1: What's in this box? Does it smell? What does it taste like?
0: <laughs> uh, so, so What do you think? I mean, you know, I um, have stumbled so backwards into direct air capture with permanent storage. And the way I came into it, I felt like it was this fully formed, baked community that I was trying to enter. And now I'm, I mean, in the past, you know, year, I've gotten a much better sense of how new all this is. And, and now you see direct air capture, like showing up in um, like the Biden plan. I was listening to a Nori podcast where a gal from Carbon 180 was talking about the different appropriations um, bills that support direct air capture. I mean, what's your, like, what's your take on that? Is that just such a cool thing? I see these, you know, you, it's all related. This ecosystem has been building and your, your team's efforts have been part of building it. Air miners has become a focal point like say tell me how that feels what do you what's your perspective on that
1: mhm mhm ah uh, yes it's mm, let's see i mean so carbon 180 they were there they were already the entrenched player when we started previously known as the center for carbon removal they started at uh uc berkeley and i believe 2014 somewhere around 2014 or 15 Noah and Gianna started the Center for Carbon Removal, and they had done so much work going to D.C. and lobbying and contributing to the creation of different policies. I believe that, well, I I, I can't say. Maybe Noah would be able to speak more to their relationship to the forty-five Q uh, tax credit for carbon capture and storage. Um, so there, there has been momentum. Um within, interestingly enough, the Office of Fossil Energy uh, drives a lot of the conversation about how the U.S. federal government is going to treat carbon capture because, of course, the fossil fuel industry does see it as a lifeline, um, a way for them to keep doing what they are doing um so now our our goal back when we started was let's break this thing open let's crack it open let's you know leonard cohen let's let's let the light show shine in and it feels great i mean we had our conference that's how that's where we met we met when we were planning the conference um that we had in may the air miners conference and um, the 300 people there, that's what we want. We want people to come in with this light and creative and fun loving and buckle down and have no fear approach to this massive challenge, massive opportunity. And now that we have the events happening every other week um the energy just just keeps building we keep having people come in or we have new companies starting and um especially now during the um coronavirus time it's also providing a really nice community because that's really what what it's uh, about fundamentally is is about people coming together
0: planning the conference was so it came at such a perfect time my family was isolated it was snowy and I felt like in in travel, the climate topic at that point in March, April, everyone was kind of saying, yeah, we were all about climate action and decarbonizing travel when we traveled. <laughs> but now that travel is fully halted, everybody was sort of down, very down in the dumps. And so to be able to go to, to be able to volunteer on that conference just really kept the light on for me. It was so so great. So now you have also alongside. So you continue to support air miners, and um, you're, I know you're active there. But tell us a little bit about climate tech advisors, because that is also a you know for the um, for tomorrow's air, which we just officially launched with our press release and um, subscription options on July twenty first. But I know that. Um, you know, we're talking about how your experience and your networks within the carbon community are are going to be advising tomorrow's air. But say more about the kinds of um, projects and and what you're doing through climate tech advisors?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and congratulations on the launch. I'm so excited to uh, to be you know along for the ride. I think it's really awesome. I think there's a lot of opportunity in with. I mean, a lot of need. So anywhere that there's a need, there's also an opportunity within uh, air travel and uh, not just from emissions, but also something that I really appreciate about. The adventure travel perspective, which is that it's really a lot of it is about uh, appreciating and being in awe of what exists on Earth. And like we can talk more. There's a whole uh, thing about awe and like maybe that's a that's a tangent. Um, awe and
0: wonder. Uh, no, the experiences of awe and wonder are they feel tangential, but they're I mean, they're core to the power of travel. Actually, that's what that's what. Wakes people up and motivates them and helps people see things in a new light. So mm-hmm. and I love that tangent. Go with yeah, it. Yeah,
1: well, and and healing too. It's it it came up um, when we were working at the Institute for the Future. We had the opportunity to to actually work with the World Bank Climate Investment Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, on what is the future of climate action. And we convened these meetings of, of experts from all different fields. And there was somebody there from the Sierra Club who was, um, he was the person who was working with insurance companies to try to influence them to create um, programs so that people can be prescribed outdoor time. And his story was, was that he was a, uh, he's a vet and he was really sad and depressed as many of our vets are. And he described this moment where he was rock climbing and he had this moment of awe and it totally turned, turned him around in in the best way. And I remember hearing him describe just those three letters as this huge thing. And, um, I love simple. Uh, Simplicity is is beautiful. Good design is simple. So when I hear somebody say, "Yes, the solution to our problems is ah," (laughs) yeah,
0: (laughs) right, nice, yeah. That I mean, I think um, I have had two sort of grand epiphanies in nature that I would sum up in that way. Also, the Institute for the Future and this. Looking forward, I know, I heard um, Tito also did a very short little video blog on this, but say, what were some of the, I mean, I think that kind of assignment is sensational, but what was one of the takeaways for you out of that? Like when you, all the speculation on our climate future, what did you guys come up with?
1: Mm, I think if we're going to talk about the climate future for me, drawdown really got it. I think that if you want to see what the climate future can and should look like, it's there in those pages among those 100 solutions. It's there. So when we talked to the World Bank about what investment in through the whole multilateral development bank system into all of these developing countries and um, how do we spend $8 billion to do so? At the end of the day, it comes down to, well, how do we make the world look like Drawdown? So, you know, how do we do mm-hmm. that? I, I, mm-hmm. I just want to tip my hat to the whole Project Drawdown team for, for, mm-hmm. making that, uh, for making that happen and giving that gift to all of us.
0: I was interested in um, Drawdown that direct air capture does not figure prominently in there. And I understand, I I think I understand why. And I I don't, I would not argue anything and draw down, I mean, those solutions that are in there that, you know, are readily available, nature-based solutions and behavioral transformations we can all make. I, it is curious though, that direct air capture isn't in there when it feels to me like most other places like the IPCC and um, that's kind of my rhodium group. Some of these resources that I'm familiar with say that in order for us to reach net zero by 2050, we're going to have to employ all these natural solutions and we're going to have to move quicker. And that is what direct air capture enables us to do. So we'll need to scale that up. Does that ring true to you or how would you what else would you say on i that think topic?
1: i would agree with uh with where drawdown placed or direct air capture which it which was as a coming soon technology so Ooh, it, okay, it did good. get a couple of pages in the back of the book and also, just to point out that direct, uh, that drawdown is not entirely nature based. There's wind energy in there. Some of the solutions that really stood out to me were actually the small scale ones, like micro hydro and micro wind. Just to me, you were like, "Whoa, that's so cool!" So if I have a stream in my backyard, that means I can power my desk lamp using the flowing of the water. That's kind of that's kind of cool. Okay, you know, so. Um, yeah yeah it's we 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 can talk more about about direct air capture and um the ipcc and all of that i I do want to answer the question, which is because I think it's sort of it'll nicely contextualize all of this of what climate tech is and why I started a company that that uh, says that it, it will advise you, <laughs> will advise anyone on, on what is climate tech, the advisors of climate tech. To me, climate tech is, is simply um, products and services that are also climate solutions at the same time. The product or the service that you're buying is, has baked into it that it is also contributing to the protection of habitats, the removal of carbon from the air, the cleaning of water, the cleaning of air. It's baked into the business model and or baked into the design. So it could be that you're procuring some product or service that is offsetting, uh, something that's like sort of balancing out its emissions somewhere else, or it could be that you're buying a product that by design produces no waste. Um, so, you know, anything that's compostable, anything that is a a circular product. So, um, reusable packaging, which is in a totally funky space right now because of COVID, Um, you know, reusable cups, it's like, I get into fights with people at the coffee shop because it's uh, uh, one day they'll refill my jar, the next day the other person won't refill my jar, and um, I don't really get into fights. I'm exaggerating, but that's what that's what climate tech is. It's it's really it's like okay, let's make this easy. How do we take this thing? You can look at you, you know, look in front of you, anything that's on your desk. How can that thing? By design, either through the strategy of how it's produced um, or the materials that go into it, how can it itself be something that's more like what we need in order to uh, in order to heal the planet and stop killing the planet?
0: Hmm. Um, I yes, and I this is like represents such a new world. I think it's very. Mind-blowing to think about products and services that are also climate solutions, and most people don't have much. I mean, our the frame we're coming from is so so opposite that this whole the fact that this even exists is what sort of um, gives me positive hope for for what we can do when it comes to stopping global warming. Tell a little bit about the project that you're working on now. I mean, you've been doing, speaking of micro um, local projects that are meaningful, um, tell a little bit about the project you've been working on most recently.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So this one is just within the context of where where is the, the product or service here? That's also a climate solution. This is a unique project because I think it remains to be seen um, in, in a sense we're kind of developing the service, um, getting into a small, getting into a niche and then seeing who else is there. That's kind of a little bit of what this is about. Like you may have found this, Christina, with, with working on Tomorrow's Air that, I mean, here we are in air miners and you may have also found other spaces where it's just you and a handful of other people. And you're like, oh, wow. OK, this is a global. There's five of us or 10 of us in the whole world. So this project um, It's a really interesting project because what we're dealing with is a a coastal resilience project, flood protection in response to Hurricane Sandy, which caused massive destruction all up and down the East Coast, including right here in my backyard, the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, was was totally flooded. The power plant blew out. There was a huge explosion and thousands of cars were flooded, and, including one of my family's cars was uh, in the garage that was planned to be the, the overflow garage, the safe garage for the cars to go into. But in fact, the uh, three-foot high sandbags that were uh, piled in front of the entrance to the garage did nothing for the six feet of water that flowed or four, four or five feet of water that flowed in. And so what's happening is the planners in the mayor's office of resiliency have looked at the predicted two and a half feet of sea level rise and said, well, if the current park is at sea level well then we need to elevate the whole park by at least two and a half feet and they have uh proposed and accepted a design that actually buries the entire park under eight feet of landfill to then build a new park on top And being in the um, having been working on this for a few years now, I I understand the nuance and I also understand that protecting habitats is one of the most important things we can do, if not the most important thing we can do is protect habitat habitat. And this habitat happens to also have a uh, species of bumblebee, the great northern bumblebee that's listed as critically imperiled in the state of New York. And so what I'm doing here is I said, okay, well, how much is it worth? How much is the park worth? How much is this monarch butterfly or this great northern bumblebee habitat actually worth in dollars? Because if we're going to avoid the question, if we're going to not put any number on our balance sheets, then we're effectively valuing it at $0. And we know that it's not worth $0. So then how much is it worth? And that's kind of the project. And my goal there is to show that this park is worth a lot of money and it's an asset. It's an extremely valuable asset. So valuable assets deserve protecting. Um, So we need a design that uh, incorporates the value of the existing ecosystem and the confidence that the park can flood. Let's build a park. Let's support the park to flood. And that's the argument. And something that I've that has become really clear in the COVID reality is that um, the value of human health, of the human health, of this mature ecosystem is astronomical. The number, it's something it seems to me like it's somewhere in the billions of dollars of value based on the 300,000 people who visit the park every year. So, this is an interesting one. This project is uh sort of different. It's a particular type of climate tech. It's not like a biodegradable cup. Um it's something that's mm-hmm. a lot more complex.
0: Mhm. And so you have been sort of doing analysis there and the end product is a report that goes where and how, tell me, tell me what, where you see it going. Mm-hmm. It's exciting.
1: Yeah. So I'm working on publishing an opinion piece in a local, uh, local news outlet. I haven't decided which one yet. I'm, I'm in the process of editing my, my piece now. And the intention is also to make it a methodology because This is an issue that exists all over the world. Ecosystems are getting destroyed all of the time. And I'm um, kind of poking at the idea that, well, maybe if we were better able to value the existing ecosystem, we would think twice before chopping it down. So how can this become a methodology that can then be replicated? And that's where this, the coming out of the open source and the hacker and the maker community really influences climate tech in this approach because nothing is just a one-time thing. Everything we do, how can we replicate it? How can somebody else do it? How can we all influence each other and make it a little bit better? And that's the spirit of innovation.
0: I'm really interested to see... Um, your report, because in tourism, and I know we chatted briefly about this one time also, this notion of valuing species and valuing ecosystems for travel has been something that um, we have looked at in sustainable tourism in the past. You know, what's the the value of the elephant, the ecotourism opportunities value of the elephant versus the um, the poached value of the elephant the lifetime value of the elephant for ecotourism is far greater and that in in travel we and uh, WWF does these studies also in specific localized areas and so I'm really interested to kind of um, see these two you know come together side by side I don't we haven't in I I not, We haven't really looked at it that I know of in the tourism research space with the climate lens on it yet. So, um, yeah, I think it's a great – this this the need to value things financially, it is – sometimes it's frustrating. And it's also – that's how policymakers operate and how, you know, we have to be able to make those arguments in those terms. Otherwise, it's just kind of like – passionate people raving into the wind.
1: Yeah. 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 Right. And, and, you know, let's, let's rave into the wind. Um, And also we're working to move, um, move from a society where the health and success of the society is measured in terms of GDP, where debt and waste are considered good things um, where where a cancer patient who's on his way to a divorce lawyer meeting and crashes his car is the ideal person, uh, according to GDP. Uh, by the way, that's a that's a Bill McKibben. Uh, that's a Bill McKibben quote. Attribute that to him um, to one where we're measuring in terms of gross happiness product or gross environmental health Product, gross environmental health. You know, what if we existed in a world where the uh, the cleanest environment, with the cleanest air, the cleanest soil, the cleanest water, was the most was the most uh, was just a measure of. Of success. So if we have areas that have the opposite of that, such as in Philadelphia, I was reading an article in the New York Times about the area in South Philly where it's so polluted that there that when visiting basketball teams come to play, the home team has an advantage because the visiting teams can't breathe. True oh my story. God. True story. Yeah, yeah. And the the prevalence of cancer uh, and asthma in the community is is very high. So we see that we need to be somewhere where all of us care, where the whole society, at the level of GDP, care about the health of the environment. And so, as we're raving into the wind, let's do it and let's make it count.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> I, um, yeah, well, anybody who knows me knows I do a lot of raving. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I want to, um, talk a little bit about your travel experiences, Matthew, because everybody on this show does some unusual travel and I am pretty sure you're not going to be the exception. Um, where, what are some, you know, what, what's a travel experience that brought you that feeling of awe or, or, I don't know. Pick one that you'd like to share.
1: Sure. Well, w- well, on brand, I'll share my uh, Amtrak journey from Emeryville in the Bay Area all the way to New York Penn Station. Um, I did it. O- I did it over ten days, where I stopped for two nights in three places, and I had my folding bike and. Wow, um, being in the Sierra, I did it in December, so in the beginning of December. so being in the Sierras and standing at the back of the train and watching the snowy mountains, you know close in behind the train and um, and then being in the, desert in Utah, uh, right at sunrise, where outside of the sightseeing car, it's 12 degrees, and I'm sitting there in my pajamas drinking hot coffee, and I'm so cozy watching the sunrise, and um, wow, you know, and and um, arriving into Glenwood Springs, and not totally realizing that, that you know, the name is really literal. There are some really amazing springs there, hot springs, including the Vi- the Yampa hot spring and the Vapor Caves. Wow, Vapor Caves. I'm like a big Glenwood Springs fanatic now. Anybody who has a chance to go to Glenwood Springs, go to the Vapor Caves. I don't know what their coronavirus policies are there, but that's like one of the most incredible places that I've... That I've ever been, and it was also driven by this um, climate opportunity. You know, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, walk the walk. I'm gonna take the train with my folding bike across the country, and I'm gonna have a great time. And I really did.
0: That's awesome. I think going slow across the U.S. it just is. There's so much variety. It is sort of too much for a little human to take in. the I also just want to flag, like you, I think of um, climate action. Uh, Tito and Ari gave me this phrase of um, taking climate action into your own hands. And there's ways that we each individually can take climate action into our own hands. And I think there's this spectrum of behavior, you know, like taking the train and having a folding bike and lots of people who might listen to this would feel like, ah, there's no, you know, like that's not realistic for me. I have three kids or whatever. I mean, there are so many situations in which I think sometimes um, people who are on the far end of the spectrum in terms of doing everything they can to live a zero waste, renewable energy, do no harm life, um, make the rest of us feel like schmucks. Um, And I, It is a, it is a, um, an evolution and a transition that I I think just the fact that someone like you exists should not stop the rest of us from taking the first step. Because sometimes I feel like that um, can come into it. Like, I could never be like that. So I'm just going to go on the way I am, you know, and that um, is a little bit of what's in tomorrow's air also is like this thinking of, okay, if I'm going to remove carbon, say I'm going to you know, remove 85 kilograms of carbon and permanently store it a year. What's 85 kilograms is really, it's, it's not even negligible. It's a very, very notional amount of carbon to be removing. But the point is to get on that journey and to signal to others that you're on the journey, um, what do you think about that? As somebody who is, like, I I aspire to train everywhere and have a folding bike. What do you? What What are your words of encouragement to the rest of us?
1: Matthew, mm. it starts with imagination. You know, I think that's I something that I one of my values that I hold pretty strongly is that there's a. Uh, invention is a natural human tendency. So you, so invent, come up with an idea, come up with a concept, use your imagination, do some visualization, see it in your mind. What does it look like? And what does it feel like? What does it taste like? And do it and go for it, you know? Um, and, and then it kind of at the core is well, self care, are we, are you you know we can't have people who are who are trying so hard to be the most the most ideal climate person but they're neglecting themselves you know that's not going to work that's not sustainable you know sustainable energy applies to uh what's inside of us too so we can set these these intentions and have these values and okay, great, you have them. Well, are you, how's your mental health? How's your physical health? How are your relationships? Because once you set that intention, intention is a really powerful thing. So once you set it and you start getting yourself right with the world, then these things, they just sort of, unfold. And, and, um, I think observation is another kind of key thing. So when we're feeling better, we can, our senses are more in tune, um, are sharper, and we can see and hear things that we might not have seen and heard otherwise. And, um, as, Paul Hawken uh, is talking about in his book, Blessed Unrest, which, I'm, which is a 2007 or 2006 book. Um, this is the world's largest movement that nobody's ever heard of, or at least in 2006. Um, so there are millions of people, possibly even hundreds of millions, or maybe even a billion people all around the world who sincerely, at their core, want to be in partnership with the earth, just like we do. And all we have to do is, uh, is be open to seeing that they're, they're all around us.
0: You're I love that. We're so, um, this is the, (laughs) you're, you're very in tune with how we are here in Santa Fe. Also. I think that this sense of observing and setting intentions and everything you say, there is so true. Um, Matthew, I love chatting with you. We are going to wrap it up here. Before I do, I want to ask you a question about music. Tell me a little bit about what kind of music you like to listen to. And has that changed any since your younger days? I often find that when I ask people what they listened to when they were young and what they listen to now, there's always kind of this, for me, totally like little shreds of embarrassment. Like, how did I listen to that? But Um, share with us your musical (laughs) taste, the evolution of the Matthew Eshed musical taste.
1: (laughs) Well, um, so my, my parents, they, they bonded over a love of, of classic rock. My dad is from Israel and my mom is here from New York city. And so they bonded over bands like the Moody Blues and the Beatles and Deep Purple. And my mom was more on the folk side. Um, Carole King, Neil Young. Um, so that was sort of, that's what was playing when I was a kid. And, um, so I went deep into it. I made my own space. I, I played guitar, electric guitar in a band. So Led Zeppelin created Clearwater, Pink Floyd. Um, then I finally got my hands on the gorillas album that had the parental advisory sticker on it. So there was, Clint Eastwood, and now I'm getting a little bit into rap. There's Eminem. And then kind of fast-forwarding at some point, I got a James Brown album, a best of James Brown. And I'm like, whoa, funk music, what? <laughs> funk is cool. I like funk. It's it's funky. Funk is funky, amazing. And there's something about horns and about the jazz and the complexity and the time signatures and... Um, that just really works for me. I, I'm just kind of, it's, it's great walking music and being an urban, urbanite. Uh, it's good to have some walking music because we do a lot of walking. And so musically, I'm funky, groovy beats. That's kind of, that's what it, uh, what it comes down to.
0: Right on. I yeah. love that. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I remember our closing um, air miners party. You had on some, um, glowing boa and i was like that's my guy
1: that's
0: (laughs) i dig it all right well thank you so much matthew we will um be in touch i'm sure
1: all right thank you very much christina